Closed area projected possibly to return back to studio next month. We'll see how that goes. This has been a multi monthly uh, uh, trial basis to see how this works. One of the reasons we have done the remote broadcast is because um, uh, at one point in time we were attempting to secure a uh, interview in San Juan uh, and via invitation to broadcast from a hotel, a beachside hotel uh, at, uh, at that, that location. Um, anyway, so now that remote broadcasting is confirmed, um, we are set to go. Solid connection here. This is Discussions of Truth. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Um, and on my website, that is iantrottier.com, you will find a, a list of excellent links. These are all uh, accessible, free uh, PDF uh, links. Uh, I've got a number of Anthony Sutton publications. He's a former Stanford Hoover fellow. Uh, the best money enemy, uh, the best enemy money can buy, is one of his publications. Federal Reserve conspiracy, America's secret establishment, uh, two faces of George Bush. Um, so I've got a number of Anthony Sutton publications, but also uh, some Eustace Mullins publications there. Edward Mandel House publications, a report on the Club of Rome. Um, the list goes on. It's very, uh, fairly ex- extensive um, and should be quite uh, entertaining and educational for those who browse. Again, they are, are, they are all free, accessibly uh, via PDF. Um, but, uh, but those are, again, uh, listed on the website. Just go to the Articles tab. The Lindstroth Report. Uh, we usually run a Lindstroth report the first Wednesday of the month. Uh, that report for this month has been pushed back and will be rescheduled. Likely we'll be doing a double header with JP um, to uh, to get uh, get you a Lindstroth report. Uh, JP is a former uh, Fulbright scholar to Brazil uh, from uh, Oxford. Okay, coming up uh, March 25th, uh, we will be hosting A, Ralph Epperson. That's initial A, name Ralph Epperson. El Nuevo Orden Mundial is one of his publications. Uh, that's coming up in March, uh, March 11th, uh, March 25th for for uh, for Ralph. Uh, William Alva Blunden, Cornell-educated, San Francisco State University-based lecturer. Uh, he'll be talking about uh, Behold a Pale Farce and Rootkit Arsenal. That'll be March 11th. Bandy Lee, 
be joining program February 19th. Uh, she is uh, currently part of the Yale faculty. Her book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess Donald Trump. Okay, that is the book that she spearheaded. She'll be joining us February 19th. Kevin Annette, Murder by Decree, The Crime of Genocide in the Country of Canada. We join the program February 12th. And starting off next month, the 5th of February, we'll be hosting here on Discuss Your Truth, Russell Warren, Russ Baker. Russell Warren Baker. Uh, Bill Morris had this to say about uh, Baker. He seemed unimpressed with conventional wisdom quickly spotted and dismissed spin and wasn't intimidated by the powers that be. Um, it has been said on program by former CIA uh, operative uh, that what is happening here in the podcast realm, uh, in independent radio, online radio realm, um, is the, uh, the new frontier really for receiving truth because what you're getting in mainstream media is totally uh, hogwash it's all it's all saturated with uh, bias and uh, big corporate uh, uh, maneuvers um, so that's uh, Ray McGovern who said that right here on this program Josh Reeves will be ending this month that's January 29th the global reality show and uh, next week, uh, next week we'll be hosting Partners in Crime, the Rockefeller, CFR, CIA, and Castro connection to the Kennedy assassination. That's Servando Gonzalez. Today, the New Yorker magazine uh, is quoted as calling him the most important thinker on intellectual property in the Internet era. We'll be dialing in very shortly former U.S. presidential candidate, among the Democrat Party in 2016, Lester Lawrence Lessig III. He's an attorney, university lecturer, and political activist. He's, he holds the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard University. Okay, uh, And he, he, again, will be joining us to speak about um, uh, what he's doing, uh, his books, and his writings. Republic Lost is uh well he'll be going into this one of his one of his books okay and if you didn't catch last week's uh episode a double header uh, uh british uh scholar tobias churton had to reschedule but we had a two-hour program with jordan maxwell and you can find that program it's been uploaded into anchor.fm where it uh goes out to uh itunes and spotify um, iHeartRadio and uh, other platforms such as Google Play, uh, and it you can also find the episode with Jordan uh, in, uh, in up, uh, up on YouTube. Uh, the New World Order is his interpretation thereof is what Jordan uh, addressed. So that is your slate coming up for the next few weeks, and uh, we are now going to dial in. Lawrence Lessig into program. 
Again, this is Discussions of Truth. I'm your host weekly, Wednesdays, 5 p.m. Ian Hamilton Trottier is my name. And we are now in our fourth year of Discussions of Truth. We just completed, uh, just completed this month, completed our third year of Discussions of Truth. You can find all previous guests uh, on my website. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. And coming up in April, from Trine Day Publishing, you will find uh, my book that you can pre-order now, um, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies. That is available on pre-order currently. Okay, so let's dial in. I've got confirmation dialing in Lawrence Lessig. Hello. Lawrence Lessig, this is Ian Trottier, Discussions of Truth, Winwood Radio, Miami. Great to speak to you. Great to speak with you and uh, appreciate you, your time. Uh, for listeners out there, and I hope you're enjoying uh, a, a, a nice 2020, the preliminary stages of 2020. Uh, that's for you, Lawrence. Uh, wishing you a happy new year. Uh, for listeners who are not familiar with uh, with with you and what you do, uh, Lawrence, would you would you would you please take a moment uh, to introduce yourself? You currently lecture at Harvard. Is that correct? That's right. Um, so hard for me to believe that there's somebody out there who doesn't know who I am. But you know, just for that one person or two people. Um, so I'm a law professor at Harvard. I've been for the last 12 years focused on the question of how we decorrupt our corrupted democracy. And I've just published a book called They Don't Represent Us, which is my latest effort to frame the problem and to describe a solution. So that's music to my ears. And, and, and that's what we addressed frequently on this program. Um, we constantly talk about uh, non-mainstream news issues, uh, stuff that just gets totally covered up, that doesn't come forth. We, we address um, uh, ties to the CFR um, and different publications like Time Magazine or CBS. But um, this, this, is, this, is, this is really music uh, to my ears to, to repeat that they don't represent us because it's becoming pretty mainstream now, to reuse that term, that um, that we have a government that is completely bought out by super PACs. Um, the voting system is of major concern, the validity thereof. Um, even 20 years ago with the hanging chads in Florida, that was a major issue. But what we're finding is um, this military industrial complex completely manipulating um, the way that a democracy perhaps arguably may have once been run. And again, that's, argu that's arguable. Uh, we the people, what does that really mean? Did it ever represent we the people? Um, it certainly didn't represent um, people like who became Martin Luther King. So that's, that's and it's and, and, and a, total, a total other argument in a nutshell. Um, uh, we could go in that direction. But per your opinion, Lawrence, what really is happening in the United States today? Well, if you look at our system of, quote, representative democracy, which is what the framers thought that they were giving us, 
it's certainly clear that from our perspective, looking backwards, it's never really represented us. Although from their perspective, given the people they thought mattered, um, it was better than it is today. I mean, today we have any number of dimensions of inequality built into our representative democracy. So the most grotesque extreme example is the way we fund campaigns. You know, members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money to fund their campaigns. And obviously, as they do that, they become sensitive to, like in the way Foucault would say, they become disciplined by the interests of their funders. But the funders are not the average American. The funders are no more than 150,000 Americans who are the people they are calling in order to fund their campaigns. So this means those 150,000 Americans are radically more important than the rest of America in creating our representative democracy because they need their money first before they have a chance to run and get our votes. So that's one example. The second example is gerrymandering. You know, we craft the House of Representatives so that most of the seats are safe seats. There's probably no more than 60 competitive seats in the House of Representatives. But what a safe seat means is that the representative is obsessively focused on what the extreme members of his or her party care about. Because the only person that can beat you in a safe seat Republican district is a more conservative safe, uh, Republican or in a safe seat uh, Democratic district, an even more um, progressive Democrat. So the point is they become extremely sensitive to the extremes, which means they're ignoring the mainstream or the other side of their representative system uh, or, or their uh, district. Um, or, you know, another, just one final obvious example, um, the Electoral College. I mean, you know, so you're calling from Florida. Florida is one of those 14 states that gets to pick the president of the United States. The rest of us, the people who don't live in the so-called swing states, we don't matter. We don't matter because no candidate cares at all how we vote because they don't spend a penny trying to persuade us how to vote one way or the other. In 2016, 99% of campaign spending was in the so-called swing states, which means the rest of America, the majority of America, just didn't matter to those candidates. But the problem is the swing states don't represent America, you know, as Florida right. will evince. You guys are older, you're whiter, or at least not Florida, but the rest of the swing states are whiter than average America, um, which means that the president is obsessed with pleasing a segment of America that does not represent America. So this is another example of how we how they just don't represent us. So how do you feel? Um, how, how, well, 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 what is let's go, let's go back to let's go back to the the money issue, because um, you know, even Kamala Harris has dropped out of, 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 of this this race. And, and, and even going back to the previous race, a guy like who I was really impressed with, Ben Carson. Uh, who just seems brilliant and very well educated surgeon, um, and he just he couldn't keep up with 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 the big money. So I think you've we've got we, we've got the intelligence and capability out there. It seems from a, from a layman's terms across the board in the United States, we've got so many worthy uh, candidates, but they just simply cannot rise above and 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 and, and get that funding. So in your view, and and of course. Uh, for listeners who may not be familiar, you, you were actually a, a candidate um, in 2016. Um, in, in your view and experience, how does that get fixed? Well, I think it's really important to realize the problem of funding presidential campaigns is radically different from the problem of funding 
congressional campaigns. And the more important problem to solve is the problem of congressional campaigns. Because right now, Congress is bought. It is completely controlled and controllable by a tiny number of funders because members of Congress know that if they get on the wrong side of these super PACs or these funders, they will be taken out. And so they have to hew to the party line, whether it's Republican or Democratic party line, to keep in line with those funders. Presidential campaigns sometimes can be different. You know, so the rich, like Bloomberg or um, uh, Steyer, can fund their campaigns, or Donald Trump said he funded his campaign independently. Turned out that wasn't true. But they can fund their campaigns um, without relying on anyone. The famous, like uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, can fund their campaigns by raising money from millions of individual contributors. Bernie Sanders' average contribution is something like $18 right now. I um, mean, he has raised 5 million, he's gotten 5 million people to give him contributions. That's unprecedented in American history. But the other people running in those races, the not rich nor famous, if they want to compete, they've either got to take big money, like Pete Buttigieg discovers he needs to, or they need to try to fund their campaign with public funding, which turns out is woefully inadequate. So I think we should also solve the problem of funding presidential campaigns to make it easier for people to compete in presidential elections without bending over backwards to big money. But the more important problem to solve, the one we have to solve if we're going to get climate change legislation or healthcare legislation or any of the other important things we've got to do is fixing the way Congress funds its campaigns. And that means through some version of public funding. Do, do, we, do, we, do we chip away a little bit at this if we um, come up with uh, uh, term limits? If you don't change the way you fund campaigns, it doesn't matter whether term limits exists or not, because the people running for Congress are going to go to the same people to fund their campaign. So somebody who's been in Congress for 30 years may depend less on these big funders than somebody who's coming in to compete against that person or compete after just being in Congress for one or two years. So I'm not against the idea of reasonable term limits. You know what? You can't look at the United States Senate, especially when they're interrogating somebody like Mark Zuckerberg and not think that these people are way, way, way over the hill and should not be in the United States Senate because they know nothing about the modern questions of especially technology. But but so I'm not against uh, term limits. It's just term limits alone are not, are not going to solve the problem. You've got to change the dependence that these candidates have on the big money. And the only way to do that for 99% of those candidates is to create a system of publicly funded elections. And where in the history of uh, campaign management or how uh, campaigns were run uh, in the history of the country, where, where did this start to become an issue in your view? Um, at what point in time in the history of, of, of the republic? Newt Gingrich broke Congress. It's just that simple. In 1995, when Newt Gingrich became the Speaker of the House, he radically changed the norms of Congress. He told members of Congress they're only going to work three days a week, not like the rest of us who work at least five, most of us six, some of us seven, uh, only have to work three days a week. The rest of the time, he, he, he sold by saying you can go home to your district. But what in turn, what in reality happened is that they went out to raise money. So they spend since 1995, 30 to 70% of their time raising money. And that life of, you know, low paid fundraisers 
radically changes the capacity of Congress, first of all, to understand the issues they're supposed to be voting on, but more importantly, to have independence to vote in a way that would actually produce a result that America cared about. I mean, what they're doing is voting in a way that makes sure the funders of campaigns are happy, but the funders of campaigns, it turns out, are not the average American. So it broke starting in 1935, and it is unrecognizable today compared to the way it was even in like 1990. So now I think it may have been a, a Joe Rogan experience or, or podcast I listened to uh, that you had mentioned that you, uh, you you have a family member. I think it was your mother lives in Hilton Head, a, a, a location that I'm familiar with, South, South, South Carolina, and a local uh, politician uh, was uh, was w- had just like recently been elected and was immediately starting to uh, raise money on on the next election. Um, do we say do we somehow try to pass a law and say, hey, wait a second, you got to focus on your term and 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 no, you can't start collecting money for down the road. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. Is is that something that we, is that is that an, is that a a a a a, 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 a road we could we could possibly pursue. Yeah. So Joe, Joe Cunningham uh, is a Democrat. It was first time a Democrat has won that district in forever. Um, he was an incredibly effective candidate and uh, he's effective at raising money. And he took that skill and after he was elected, turned it into raising more money. Um, and it's obvious why he did that, because it's a district that the Republicans are going to fight like hell in 2020 to reclaim. And so it was important for him to build the war chest necessary for him to withstand the Republican onslaught. But look, no, I don't think we should be solving the problem of money by uh, 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 just learning to say no more effectively. First of all, the Supreme Court would never allow a law to be passed that said you you can't raise money. Um, Supreme Court has made that pretty clear. But secondly, I think we've been trying to reform Congress on the cheap for way too long. We've been trying to fix the problem of money in politics by talking about all the places where the law will say no. So we tried to say no to soft money. We tried to say no to super PAC money. We tried to say no to all these places where money was bleeding in and Congress said it didn't like the effect of that money. And I don't like the effect of that money either, but the Supreme Court has made it clear you can't simply say no. What you can do, and the Supreme Court has said this again and again, is you can publicly fund these campaigns. You can make it easy for people to raise money without depending on big money to fund their campaigns. And the best way to publicly fund campaigns is to do something which uh, Andrew Yang has talked about, now even Bernie Sanders is talking about, basically giving every voter what we could call a democracy voucher, basically taking the first 50 or 100 or $200 of taxes, which they send to the federal government, and absolutely every American sends that amount of money to the federal government, regardless of the source of the taxes, and send it back to them in the form of a voucher and say, you can use these $100, $200 to help people fund their campaigns. And if you did that, then what Joe Cunningham in Hildenet would be doing is not calling up the relatively rich. He thought my mom was rich, but only because she gave him a significant amount of money before she passed away. But um, but but they'd be raising money from average people, ordinary people. They'd be going to neighborhoods, even poor neighborhoods, and they'd be saying to people, here's what I will do for you. Here's why you should elect me as your congressperson. And if that's compelling, then people in those neighborhoods would start giving those candidates that money. And so they would be dependent, of course, on their funders, but their funders would be the people. That's what a democracy is supposed to be. Right now, they are dependent on their funders, 
And the funders are not the people. They are the indirectly the corporations or they are the super rich. You know, the, the lesson uh, that we've known since the beginning of, of uh, nursery rhymes is he who pays the piper calls the tune. And if it's the 150,000 who are funding campaigns right now, they're calling the tune. But if we were funding the campaigns, we would be calling the tune. And, and that means they would be responsive to us. Strength in numbers. So, Lawrence, let's go into the, to voter fraud. How do we what's what's the what's the what's the new frontier in submitting a vote in, in the country? How do you see that? Well, look, obviously, in theory, we should be worried about voting fraud. But the reality is there's no there's just no significant problem of voting fraud. There's been study after study that has tried to demonstrate that there are people who are actually out there trying to vote in more than one place at one election. And they just can't find it. Now, every once in a while, they'll find somebody. It turns out most of the people found in 2018 were Republicans trying to vote in more than one place. But you'll find somebody who who doesn't realize that they're not supposed to vote in this district or that district. There was a really unfortunate woman in uh, in Texas, who uh, African-American woman, who was on probation and didn't know that means she couldn't vote. So she went to vote and she was convicted for voting fraud because you're not allowed to vote if you're on probation. Sentenced to five years in jail. Five years in jail. You know, the people who caused the financial crisis that threw how many millions of Americans out of their home, they didn't serve one day in jail. But this woman who just tried to vote was sentenced to five years in jail. I mean, so I get the theoretical problem, but I, you know, I'm an academic. Even an academic like me can realize that theory is one thing and reality is something different. The reality is these schemes designed to eliminate so-called voting fraud are actually schemes designed to make it difficult for some people to vote. And who are those people? They are the people from a party not represented by the party in power in that state. So in the state of uh, uh, Georgia, the Republican Party deployed many techniques, throwing people off the voting rolls, matching names to say that they were trying to commit voting fraud, shutting down polling places, reducing the times of polling places, uh, reducing the days that the times you could vote before the election day. All of that was intended for one purpose only, to make it harder for Democrats to vote. Now, turns out most of the Democrats that were affected by that were also African-American. So many African-Americans look at that and say, the intent here was to make it harder for blacks to vote. And I don't have a problem with describing it like that, but the reality is what they're motivated by is the desire to make sure the other party can't win. They're tilting the playing field against the outsider. And that is just deeply un-American. We should not have a voting system where the people running the system are allowed to run it so that their opponents find it harder to vote. Yet that's the reality we have right now. And it's justified with all this, excuse the term, it's a technical legal term, bullshit around the idea of voting fraud. (laughs) So your book is They Don't Represent represent Us, and, and, and you've written a number of books. And, and I also want to get into net neutrality because uh, you did something interesting at, at Stanford uh, by developing the Center of Internet and Society. Um, and so yeah, the Internet has really kind of transformed the way we live our life and the way we receive uh, and, and our information and communicate that information um, and even make purchases and, and whatnot. Uh, so radically in the in the past twenty years, but sticking for the moment with they don't represent us, uh, uh, Lawrence. Who who are they? Yeah, well, the book actually talks about two different things. So the one they that everybody would immediately imagine I'm talking about is they as in the government, and 
that's chapter one and chapter uh, three. They don't represent us in the sense that the government doesn't represent us for all the reasons we've just been talking about. Money in politics, gerrymandering, the Electoral College, the Senate, the suppression of votes. Those are all the dimensions of inequality, unrepresentativeness built into our democracy. But the second part of the book, chapters two and chapter four, talk about what I think is a much harder problem. I I think we don't represent us. Uh You know, the way in which we get represented in the political process, you know, through public opinion polls, call us up as we're preparing for dinner, ask us, what do you think of thorium reactors? Or um, should we uh, ratify uh, NAFTA again? Or all these questions that get thrown at people uh, when uh, they're trying to do other things. We get represented by uh, by those polls. But those polls are, are ridiculous because we today live in a media environment where 40% of us are focused on the Fox News world and 40% of us are focused on the MSNBC world. And the facts that we believe are true are very different depending on which world you happen to occupy. And so we are divided and polarized and have no chance to even understand the issues that we are being asked about. So that when we get rendered in these polls, we get rendered as ridiculous, as ignorant, as people that don't know anything. And it reinforces the position of anti-Democrats who wanna say, look, the people are idiots. Why should we set a government up to follow what the people do? Let's set up technocrats or academics or you know law professors to run our government. And my view is that anti-democratic movement is winning because we get represented in such a stupidly idiotic way. And instead of us being represented like that, we're never going to silence polls and we're never going to stop you know people from expressing themselves. That's not what I'm talking about. What instead we need to do is to begin to build other ways that we the people can be represented, ways that make it so that there's a representative number of us who are diverse and reflect you know, the average actual population, who are given information, given a chance to reflect on the question, and then given a chance to give their views after that reflection. And that way of representing us, which is through processes like what's called deliberative polling or other ways of, um, of, of inducing many publics to speak for the people would produce a view of us that I think is a fairer representation of us than the way we get represented right now. And I think that's just as important a problem, maybe even a harder problem than the problem of uh, solving the government. Because I can tell you right now, the five things to do to fix the problem of they don't represent us as in the government doesn't represent us. But it's a really hard problem given cable news and social media to think about how we produce a public of we that actually properly can be said to represent us. Right. So I think it was uh, maybe yesterday uh, that uh, that Facebook uh, had come out and, 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 and suggested that they uh, that they that they did uh, suede uh, voters uh, in, in a way that that tilted tilted the, the, the platter. Uh, towards Trump in that in, in that in that last election, how does social media move forward in this regard um, uh, to level? It, can it possibly level the playing field? Is that is that a question that makes sense to you? Not anymore. <laughs> Although, in, you know, in my in my naive days, my early days when I was working on the internet, you know, yeah. many of us were really optimistic. The internet was a great leveler. Like all we had to do to solve the problem of ignorance in America is to give people access to more information. Well, we did that. And it turned out uh, the polarization and the fragmented media has now produced a different kind of ignorance. And, um, you know, it's just as bad, maybe even worse. Um, Look, you know, I think the key thing is to recognize 
that all of this is driven by the commercial business model of both cable news and social media. I mean, start with cable news. You know, in 1995, when um, uh, Roger Ailes started Fox News, the original vision of Fox News was, was going to be like every other news show. It was going to try to appeal to all of America. And early on, Roger Ailes said, hell no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to focus on the conservative base of America. We're going to turn out our base. We're going to develop a message that appeals to them. We don't care about the liberals. Let the rest of the media fight over the liberals. We're going to focus on the base. And that business model was shocking when it was announced. Even in Fox News, people in Fox News couldn't believe that they were going to do that. But they did it, and they proved that it was the most profitable business model for cable news. And then everybody else followed them. So MSNBC is now just the opposite. I mean, they're not... I mean, because I'm a liberal, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that they're as bad. Of course, they're not as bad. I, I think that they're more fact-based than much of what goes on in you know the Tucker Carlson world of, of Fox News. But still, the point they realized is the same point that Roger Ailes realized. They need to identify a base and turn them out. That is their business model now. That's how they sell the most ads. And that's the same thing in Facebook. Facebook realized early on that if they sell ads to an a passionate, activated, motivated, partisan base, people playing the politics of hate, they're going to get more attention, more activity, more turnover, more money for the people who are buying the ads. So that's what they build it for. They build the platform to enable the ads to be sold the best. Now, the question is, building a platform to sell ads, does that build a platform to advance democracy? And I think what we're seeing is the answer to that question is absolutely no. I mean, it's good for Facebook, but what's good for Facebook is not good for America and, and or good for democracy. And, and I think the real challenge we have is, what do we do now that this massive system of social media has a business model that is contrary to the business model of democracy? Who's supposed to win, the business model of social media or democracy? Right, and, 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 and speaking of the... Um, the, the the media and how Fox is totally uh, to the right, and then MSNBC is totally to 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 the left. Is is that's is that greed driven? Is that is that what that is? Because it seems like it seems like uh, you know, fair and balanced, which is which is uh, which, which is uh, what Fox uh, claims to be. They're completely unfair and balanced. Um, but that's not when Americans want to turn on uh, a news source. That's objectively what they want to get is just the reporting. Now it's uh, statistics are swayed in one way or the other. Um, is that is that is that is that driven by greed? Is it, is is that all that is 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 no longer a uh, no longer a desire to give the American public uh, the facts, but to give them what they're going to eat up? Well. You know, I wish I could believe that the American public really just wanted the facts. <laughs> but, you know, because if that's what the American public wanted, uh -huh. we would see in prime time people like the modern version of, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite. <laughs> but we don't. We see in the modern prime time, you know, very smart proponents of one side and the other. And it's not like Fox News or MSNBC is stupid about this. You know, I mean, I'm sure they do the uh, research. I'm sure they try to see what their audience wants. And if the audience wanted somebody who was kind of down the road, middle of the road, telling it as it is, um, uh, you'd see it in prime time. But you don't. What you see in prime time are basically um, uh, opinion news shows. And they're opinion news shows to make the audience comfortable. 
So people watch Fox News in prime time. They see Tucker Carlson. They want to be comforted. They want they want they want their worldview affirmed by Tucker Carlson. What's great about Tucker is um, he does that most of the time. But he keeps it interesting. You know, every once in a while, he blows it up a little bit. So, you know, the president launches a missile strike that uh, takes out uh, a general, uh, you know, one of leading government officials in Iran, really one of the most astonishing acts, war crimes, I think, um, in the history of the United States. Um, and all of Fox lines up behind him, except Tucker Carlson. Now, you know, I actually think Tucker Carlson, in his heart of heart, hates the war mentality that has defined neoliberalism for the past, uh, you know, what, 50 years. Um, but but the point is, he says what he says, and it becomes a little bit of a fight on Fox News, and it makes it more interesting to watch Fox News. So it's not like it's against the interest of Fox News to have some division between Tucker and the rest of Fox News. But the point is, the dominant view is very quickly to reinforce people's desire uh, who watch Fox News to like Donald Trump, because those people like Donald Trump. So they want to be convinced Donald Trump is not a crazy man for taking out assassinating a leader of another government. And so most of the people on Fox News reassure them of that. And and this is, you know, you don't know, we have to be kind of, uh, you, know, you know, I think too often we're kind of judgmental about it in a way that's not fair. I, I've got on my, web, on my phone a, a, an app called Read Across. And what Read Across does is it watches what I, li- what I read and then it figures out what I should be reading in order to give me a balanced view of the news. When I use that app, I hate it. I hate it. I don't want to be forced to read this stuff I know is ridiculous, like being fed Fox News stories midway through my stories from the New York Times. I know what I want to read, and I don't like to be told what I ought to be be reading by my app. And so I, I get it. I get why people enjoy living in their little bubbles and being re, uh, confirmed in their little bubbles by the people who are talking to them. That is the reality, and that is the problem. When we have a democracy filled with all of us living in our bubbles, but we've got to deal with problems in common, like, you know, should we impeach the president? What does the democracy do when the people don't even see a common set of facts? Lawrence, what is the, what is the, the biggest takeaway, the thing that you learned from your uh, run at uh, the Oval Office? Well, so let's be clear about what happened. In 2016, 2015, I was convinced that the Democratic Party needed to make fundamental reform of our political system the central issue in their campaign. They needed to say, um, fix democracy first or drain the swamp, whatever way you want to put it. The point is, I believed, and the data supported this, that most Americans, like more than 85% of Americans were deeply angry at the corruption of our government and the Democratic Party should put it in the center of the stage. I tried to recruit candidates to do that. They refused. Um, I was you know, working for Bernie at the time. I tried to get Bernie to do it. He, he said he didn't think it should be the primary issue. He thought healthcare should be the primary issue or whatever. So what I said is, look, I think the evidence we had at the time was I could actually run and if I ran, I would at least be able to be on the Democratic stage in those debates. And if I was on the debates, on stage in the debates, I could drive the conversation in a way that forced those candidates to take on this issue of fundamental reform. And whether or not all that happened was that I was on the debate stage, that alone would be reason enough to try. So um, the Democrats announced the rules for what would qualify you to be on the debate stage. Um, in those days, it wasn't um, how many contributors you got. It was just according to these so-called polling numbers from independent organizations. Um, based on the numbers, we thought I could qualify. 
originally we were kind of surprised because the Demo- because the pollsters were not including my name, so I couldn't qualify under the polling rules because my name was not being included in the polls. Bloomberg News wrote wrote a op-ed about how ridiculous that was because they knew from their own data that if my name were in the polls, then I would qualify. Um, but coming up to the second debate, um, I was getting the numbers. I was going to qualify for the second debate. And just before um, the second debate, the Democratic Party basically told me that they were changing the rules, that the rules are going to be changed so that I wouldn't qualify. And um, and when they told me they were going to be changing the rules so that I would not qualify for the debates, yeah. there was no reason for me to continue to run. So, you know, I, I was a little astonished. We never expected that they would change the rules midway through the game in order to make sure that I was not on stage. Yeah. Uh, the conspiracy theorists were pretty convinced that they were doing that because they wanted to sure. make sure that nobody on stage was talking about money and politics. But look, in 2020, this election cycle, we have at least nine candidates running in the Democratic Party and one in the Republican Party who has said that they are going to enact fundamental reform of the democratic process as the first thing that they did. So the thing I tried to run on in 2016 is now embraced by the majority, the vast majority of the democratic uh, ticket and at least uh, uh, Bill Weld on the Republican ticket. So that's progress. And it makes me incredibly hopeful that we could in 2021 see a president who actually makes fundamental reform happen. Are we on a are we on a teeter totter ride in this country? And, and and what I mean by that is, um, let's just let's just go back to Clinton, and then since since Clinton we go Bush, and then we go uh, Obama, and then we go to this totally total extreme. Um, you know, somebody who's had no he's like a reality TV uh, TV star basically in in the White House, and he's uh, he's 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 runs his mouth. Um, he's com- uh, completely completely opposite of what you'd expect in a well-groomed, well-spoken Obama, for instance, and then we've got we've got Trump. It's, it, it seems to me like it's a bit of a soap opera. It seems to me um, like it like like um, the 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 coffers that are driving uh, driving this uh, DC machine, uh, perhaps almost like a, a Fox versus an MSC, are doing it to um to, to basically feed feed the uh, the American people um what. What, uh, what, 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 you know, like easy, easy bait, um, uh, something easy to chew on. Is that what's happening? Does that somehow reflect, um, reflect the corruption that you allude to in, in, in DC? You know, I, I think actually DC has just lost control of the dynamic. Um, you know, the most interesting data from 2016 that I know of is the New Hampshire primary. You know, in New Hampshire, they have a system where you can register as undeclared, and then on the election day, you get to declare whether you want to vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. The vast, the majority of people in New Hampshire are undeclared. Um, and when they were polling them about who the undeclared people were going to vote for, the number one choice that they were trying to struggle with is whether they would vote for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Now, from from Washington's perspective, that's just incomprehensible. How could you be undecided between Bernie Sanders or Donald <laughs> Trump? You know, I mean, that's yeah. like night and day. Uh, um, but from the ref, but from the uh, reform perspective, this is completely understandable because Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both 
framed themselves as outsiders who were going to shake up and change the system. Now, it's kind of surprising. Bernie had been in Washington since 1990, so it's not like he was a real outsider, but he but he certainly played like an outsider. And, and that was what Donald Trump did as well. So the point is, the, the people were so passionately driven by the idea that we needed an outsider to fix this broken, corrupted government, and the insiders just don't get it. And so I think that, um, you know, that's still true today. And I think that's why you're seeing this reform message take off even among people who are genuine insiders in Washington, um, uh, but especially on, among the outsiders. And and I think that it could be a real opportunity to divide some of the Donald Trump support because, you know, if you were somebody who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 because you thought he was going to drain the swamp, yeah. uh, let me tell you, that swamp is not drained. It is <laughs> right. filled. It is filled with swamp monsters. The lobbyists control over what happens in Washington today is a thousand times worse than it was just four years ago. So if you care about swamp monsters, uh, it's not Donald Trump is going to get rid of them. So maybe you should start thinking about a Democrat. Now, you know, many of these people are like, I don't care about the policies of the Democrats or the policies of the Republicans. I just want to end the corruption. Right. And those people need to start thinking about whether Donald Trump is going to do it. And so far, the evidence is there's no reason that he would. Yeah. And, and, and as much as the, the teeter-totter comment um, comes into play in, in regards to, 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 to what I'm saying, um, it seems like foreign policy stays the same uh, throughout. I mean, there's little twerks and twinks, but um, for the most part, it's like there's still troops in, in Iraq. There's still troops in Afghanistan uh, and, 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 that, and that sort of thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, your time clerking for uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. What did you take away from your time with, uh, with, uh, with Justice Scalia? Well, you know, um, I clerked for uh, Scalia early in his career. Not, you know, I mean, he went to the court in, I think, 86, and I clerked for him in 1990 uh, uh, to 91. So he was young on the court, and he was still trying to figure a bunch of stuff out. And what was most impressive to me about him was that, you know, he had announced himself as an originalist, which means somebody who um, would be bound by the original understanding or the original meaning of the Constitution. Um, but he was also a conservative. And sometimes the conservative instincts are inconsistent with the originalist instincts. The most ex clearest example of that is with criminal rights, like the conservative typically is pro-police. But the framers of our Constitution were not pro-police. They were very, very strongly supportive of the rights of the accused and the rights of uh, innocent people to be protected from the state. So in those conflicts, what was so important to me was that Scalia, when uh, torn between his conservative instincts and his originalist principles, would always tilt in favor of the originalist principles. Now, I don't think that was true throughout his career. I think as he got older on the court, he began to be a little bit more confident in his conservative views. But at that stage, what was striking to me was seeing this person, this you know, essentially unremovable person being restricted by self-imposed principles that uh, he thought um, were the uh, principles that expressed his job. And that, that was an impressive idea. Yeah. Um, where was it, uh, Lawrence, in, in your career, in your study uh, of, of corruption, what, what was it for you that said, hey, wait a second, America is compromised and I'm, I've got to do it. I've got to, I, was it Newt Gingrich? What, what was it that got you saying, I'm going to take action. I'm going to stand up. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make a difference. Well, you know, this is a story I've, I, I, I've told, but um, it is the story. So I had a friend, um, his name's Aaron Swartz. He's a 
was one of, incredible genius, uh, one of the original, you know, at the age of 13, he helped create the RSS protocol, which, you know, people use to distribute stuff on the web. And um, he was one of the founders of Reddit. He was the chief architect of Creative Commons. So he was this genius technician at a very young age who then became a really powerful political social activist. Um, and in 2006, uh, he, I, he came to me, I was, I was spending the year in Berlin and um, I was really excited about the work I was doing. I was about to give my first TED talk about copyright issues and I was finishing what would turn out to be my last book on copyright issues, a book called Remix. Um, and I was presenting, telling him all about this and he was really deeply unimpressed. And he said to me, so, um, how do you, why do you think you're ever going to make any progress on these questions of internet policy or copyright so long as we have this deeply corrupted Congress? And I said to him, uh, you know, a little bit miffed, he wasn't excited about my work. I said to him, you know, so Aaron, uh, um, it's not my field. And he said, you mean as an academic? I said, yeah, as an academic, it's not my field. I do copyright policy and internet policy. And he said, well, what about as a citizen? Is it your field as a citizen? And I realized at that moment he had me, you know, I had yeah, tenure, I had no excuse not to work on this or anything else. And I thought he was right. There was no chance of actually making real progress on copyright policy or internet policy or any other policy, climate change policy or healthcare policy or minimum wage or you name it until we fix this corrupted political system. So I agree with him that night, I was gonna give it up. And he and I started the first organization that I began here, it was an organization called um, Change Congress, it became Root Strikers, um, and worked together to, to try to build this movement for reform until um, in uh, uh, 2013, he um, uh, was charged by the government with right. downloading too many academic articles from JSTOR and facing um, criminal conviction, he committed suicide. So um, uh, that uh, extreme prosecution led him to take his life and we lost an extraordinary amount uh, because of that. I lost a friend, but his taking his life um, in some sense recommitted me to the cause that he started me on and uh, I'm not gonna give up until we succeed in doing what he said we had to do. Fantastic. Um, Lawrence, as in, in winding down here, one, one final question for you. Uh, I think listeners can take away perhaps the most alarming uh, issue facing the nation in, in regards to politics is maybe attempting to do what, what Trump said he would do in, in draining that swamp and, and, and getting, getting, cleaning up the, the corruption. But in winding down, the final question I have for you, Lawrence, is given the United States Constitution, would you change anything about it? Would you make an, an amendment to it in today in 2020? And if you would, what would be the first thing that you would change about it? I would amend the Constitution to guarantee that we are all equal as citizens, which means you can't play the games of gerrymandering. You've got to fund campaigns so the rich people don't have a thousand times more influence than the poor people. You can't make it harder for some people to vote because of their political party. You can't have an electoral college that basically allows a few states to decide who the president of the United States will be. I would require everybody have an equal freedom to vote and the right to vote. And if you did that and you built that into the constitution, you begin to give lawyers a way to enforce equality when the politicians are not eager to give it to us. I think that would be the most important change we could make. Beautiful. And uh, do you voice your support to any, any, uh, anybody running in this upcoming election? Not yet. 
I mean, I'm eager to get them all to commit to fundamental reform, which uh, um, we've seen more and more of them do. I was on the stage with Bernie Sanders 10 days ago, and he committed to fundamental reform. That was incredibly important. But um, uh, my job is to try to get all of them to, and then uh, then I'll vote for the one that excites me beyond that. And Larry, what's what's next for you? What 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 can listeners expect uh, coming down the pipe from you? Well, um, on Friday, the Supreme Court will decide whether some of our cases challenging the Electoral College will um, will go to the Supreme Court. But you know, I think the best thing to do is just go to equalcitizens.us and follow us, and you can you can see a bunch of litigation trying to get reform. You can see a bunch of efforts to get candidates to commit to reform. You can join our podcast. We have our own podcast at uh, equalcitizens.us slash another way um, and, uh, and join the movement. Wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, Lawrence Lessig. Larry, thank you. thanks for joining the program. We look forward to inviting you back on. Thank you for having me. You've tuned in to Winwood Radio. This is your weekly host, I come at you Wednesdays, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard. Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow Larry. Get one of his books. Look at what he's doing. Uh, I always try to urge uh, listeners to, frankly, not take sides politically. Uh, That's where my position of comfort uh, is. Uh, I have my own opinions about the uh, political system, and uh, it is certainly that it's incredibly corrupt. Um, so I stand back and, 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 and don't take sides uh, politically. I was asked the other day, how would you vote? I would, I would, I would vote independent. Um, Larry's one of the brilliant minds, in my viewpoint, that is aggressively trying to change this system. Uh, And like former guest on the program, Cynthia McKinney, uh, has also been involved uh, very closely with uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie, to me, seems like uh, a stalwart in in, in that effort, again, to, uh, to see that uh, to see that all voices are heard across uh, across the country, but but there's a lot to be done, and hopefully uh, Larry can uh, uh, can make uh, make some continue to make some uh, make some headway. This is January eighth, another another edition of Discussion to Truth. I appreciate and thank you for listening, tuning in, share the podcast, look for Freedom Reserved. No More Lies, coming at you by Trine Day Publishers, April 2020. And until next week, be awesome.